Hey everyone, welcome to Tribe Exchange. Uh, you are in for a treat. Uh, I have a very, very special man in the house, Stephen Garber. And I will read this first and then I'll explain precisely why I'm so excited about Stephen being on the show. A husband and a father and a grandfather, Stephen Garber is also a neighbor and a friend, a native of the great valleys of Colorado and California. With his wife Meg, they have lived in Washington, D.C. area for over 30 years. He's a teacher to many people in many places, serving as senior fellow of vocation and the common good um, for the M.J. Mardock Charitable Trust, the author of several books. His most recent is Seamless Life, a Tapestry of Life, of Love and Learning, Worship and Work. So this is sort of wrote this down so I make sure that I, I get the details here. But um, a little bit of the backstory, uh, Deb and I, my wife and I were um, at, a, at a retreat at, at this very magical place here in Texas called Lady Lodge. And I stepped into the library. It was a few days of complete quiet solitude and introspection. And uh, I looked at the, at, and, and this one title jumped out, out at me. Yeah, it was a book called The Seamless Life, A Tapestry of Love, Learning, and Worship and Work. Here it is. And I started, it's, a, it's not a big book. And I could not read it fast because it was so good. I had to sip it like good wine. And it's not typical for me to have bookmarks and notes like this, but they're full of it after this. I, was, I couldn't get enough, so I got this second book, Visions of Vocation. Common Grace for the Common Good by Stephen Garber. And um, and I just honestly couldn't resist. Eventually, I, I just reached out to Stephen, and he very gracefully uh, responded. So um, uh, I'm, I'm very excited about uh, the friendship we've built and the communications we've had over the... So it's Stephen High. And, of course, I have Elias yeah. Delo with me as well. Hello. So, uh, so Stephen... Um, uh, uh, I've said this to you again. I, I, you're one of the most impactful writers in the last probably five years in my life when it comes to just how much insight you've had. I think for me, two things stand out. One is this this holistic view of the human life and how it can integrate spirituality, professional uh, work, family, all of that together. And number two, how you speak into this idea of... Um, Marketplace, the marketplace theology, which is a great term, seriously. Uh, so here's my question to you. First question, and Elias can probably chime in, obviously. Um, what is marketplace theology, and uh, what does it? How does it have? How does it impact real life marketplace dynamics? I think more specifically. Sometimes to take a word and turn it over helps us, like the word responsibility is built out of the f insight that uh, we have the ability to respond. So responsibility is not a mysterious word, it's the ability to respond to the world around us. Um, marketplace theology is the theology of the marketplace, you know, in its own more simple terms. Um, if you think about different branches or divisions of theology, there is uh, pastoral theology, there's systematic theology, there's you know, uh, Old Testament theology, New Testament theology. The theology of the marketplace is looking at the questions of, of our, our life in the, in the world of work. So it's why we work and what we do and the work we do and why does it matter, why doesn't it matter really. And uh, so I would say that the insight of the language comes from a dear friend of mine named Paul Stevens, who was a longtime professor at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia. And uh, um, many of us all over the world have taken up the same language and talk about ourselves wanting to work in the area of marketplace theology. So, so in, in a very practical way, and, and I love the combination, I love the marriage of marketplace and theology. It seems that they don't go together, but they do, right? Yeah, yeah. So tell, tell us about how you marry those things in real life, because I, I know yeah. of some of your work with the Mars <clears throat> Corporation, yeah. with, the, with people on the Capitol Hill, which is sort of the place where you don't think of theology if you associate, associate it with Capitol Hill as a guiding light in any way, shape, or form. Tell us a little bit more of the dimensions of this and how it impacts real life, people mm -hmm. doing real life things. Yeah. 
So there are a thousand stories to tell, Christian. We don't have the whole of the rest of life to talk about it, but um, I have in the last few weeks several times been in speaking in retreat settings or conference settings and have had reasons to offer this image to people where I've been, been, have been. Is it possible to become as theologically mature as you are professionally competent? Is it possible to become as theologically mature as you are professionally competent? And you can imagine that, you know, in the way we typically think about our lives in the world, we think, well, people who are theologically serious go off to that end of the room, and those, of course, who are, you know, more spiritually, religiously serious, they go off to that other end of the room, really. And uh, my question has been more, but how do you hold them together? Is it possible to, to hold them together? Um, because you're in Texas, and you and I have talked a little bit about Lady Lodge, you know, and you mentioned it already in this podcast. Uh, it was actually born of the, a, a wrestling through uh, of one Texans man, uh, Howard E. Butt, and his family, of course, formed the HEB grocery stores in Texas and the central markets that some of you Texans know these days. Uh, but for 100 years, they've been selling groceries all over Texas. And in his 20s, he had this, you know, a deepening theological interest uh, as he was growing more serious about his faith. But he also had the, his father's expectation he would join in the family business someday. He was H-E-B junior after all. And for the decade of his 20s, I would say he wrestled and wrestled quite seriously with, you know, who was calling him, his father on, on, on earth or his father in heaven. And uh, there's more to the story than I can have, have time to tell you right now, but I would say the Laity Lodge was born out of his own wrestling with this question of calling or this question of vocation, which are really the, the very same words in Latin and in Greek. Um, and uh, I would say for 60 years, Lady Lodge has been a, a place for people to think more deeply, more clearly about the nature of their own vocations in the world. Is it possible to become someone as theologically serious, theologically mature as you are professionally competent? Hmm. You and I had a little back back and forth about a good friend of mine named Hans Hess in the last week or two. And Hans was is a businessman, is an entrepreneur, and uh, grew up in California, came to school in Texas for a while, came to Washington, D.C. for a longer period of time, and started a, a hamburger company eventually. And um, it, you know, did very, very well all over the world. And uh, um, even won a few years ago the great hamburger smackdown, which was a competition by Men's Fitness Magazine, I think it was. They were looking for the, the best hamburger in America. And they did all the interviews, all the evaluations, all the critiques, and chose Hans's Elevation Burger to be the best hamburger in America. Because it was so healthy and so tasty at the very same time. And because it was healthy and tasty together, Christian, I used to say to Hans, you know, you're making an eschatological hamburger, Hans, aren't you? <laughs> um, that is, be that is yeah. just beautiful, <laughs> eschatological hamburger. Um, but I said to him, I can't promise you, Hans, that in the marriage supper of the Lamb, that your hamburgers are going to be there. I don't know for sure about that, but I would say that something like that will be there. Because, you see, the whole table will, will be full of food that's tasty and healthy together. There'll be no trade-offs. There won't be an end full of donuts, an end full of apples. We have to choose between these two ends of the table. It'll be replete, you know, a wonderful banquet full of healthy, tasty food from beginning to end, really. So I said, for you to do your best right now, your darndest right now, to make a healthy, tasty meal for us to eat, well, it's eschatological, isn't it? It's a signpost of the world that someday will be. And... Uh, so, so, I so, so, can I interrupt you just for yeah, one second? Yeah, please please. Do, yeah. to, to bridge this... From this very, you know, big words, eschatological, right? Which is about to, the future. Or will yes. It be true about the future. But what I love about it, if you can, can you unpack a little bit of the backstory? Because I remember, the, I mean, I've actually even yeah. watched some of the interviews with Carl Hess, and mm -hmm. it's a fantastic backstory. Because basically, from what I understand, and maybe you can fill in the blanks, he worked in Capitol Hill, and he was doing research for someone there about oh, why antibiotics mm -hmm. for congressmen, why, the, why antibiotics yeah. for children... Why, why are they not a f sort of helping children enough? Right. And he was sort of right. doing this research, and he found this study, apparently, that the reason for that is because the meat was so pumped with antibiotics that they re developed a resist or a immunity or resistance to it, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so right. When, yeah. when they needed it the most, they wouldn't help them. And that yeah. sort of sparked the idea of Elevation Burgers. Is that correct? Exactly Can you fill in the blanks with that? Yeah. That's exactly how it worked. Uh, you know, if you just think through whether you think it works well or not, but you know, 
members of the Congress are there on their best best terms, at least to serve their people. And if you were a mom or a dad in Austin or Des Moines or Seattle and your kid was sick and they went to get prescriptions and antibiotics were prescribed and then they just didn't get better. You wonder what happened here really. And and maybe along the way you might wonder, is this a problem that's beyond my family? Is actually is it a bigger problem for more people than just me? And maybe you decide you're gonna write your congressman to say something's not right with what's going on with health health care and with pharmaceuticals and with, you know, antibiotics in America. What's what's the problem here? And Hans got this letter working for his congressman. He began to do research, as you said, and discovered there was a line of research that said, in fact, that one of the reasons was that our meat supply was so laced with antibiotics because cows are not made to, with four stomachs, they're not made to eat grain all the time. It's just not the way that God made them to be. They're meant to eat grass most of the time. Grain some, I suppose so, yes, but grass most of their stomachs are meant to ruminate four different times over grass before they turn it into the rest of the cow's life and 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 uh, and body um, with grain though they they're not meant for that and so they have to be given antibiotics to in some ways keep them from getting sick eating grain all the time and of course when they grow so fast eating grain all the time they get killed and of course what we're doing is eating antibiotic laced meat a good bit of the time in america and uh so Hans began to pencil with his wife, you know, who was working for a, a bank at the time, thinking, can we make a healthier hamburger? Is it possible to make a healthier hamburger? Um, and uh, finally, after about a year of that, they decided they were going to try. And Hans really loved U2's music a lot. So we called it Elevation Burger after the Elevation Song of U2. And, uh, ah, that is the connection. I used, I used to tease him looking at the menu that he made. I said, Hans, there's this burger and this burger. When, when are you going to have a Christian hamburger? Excuse me, Christian. <laughs> <Ray Flores>. Yes. Because, <laughs> uh, of course, there when Christians come to a store, store like that, they're looking for their own brand of a hamburger to have typically, you know. And I, he would laugh and he would, I would say, you know, probably back behind the counter, you're putting a little cross-shaped, you know, elevation burger sauce on your hamburgers to sanctify them, aren't you, really? Or maybe there's a secret secret menu, you That's know, how sometimes they have the menus that are not printed. Yeah. We That's took, I'll I just give you one more little window into all this, but we took, you know, at their invitation or their request, a group of seminary students from one of the best-known seminaries in America who asked to come to Washington to study these questions of faith in the world and they said well, can, would you host us for a week and so we did that and showed them the city of washington and had to meet people around the city and people working out their vocations in different kinds of places and brought them to lunch at hans's restaurant one day and they were seriously uh critical of hans because as they said but where's the signage that says that you're a christian hans how are we going to know that you're a Christian if you don't have signs in the store that says this is a John 3.16 hamburger? Really? And uh, <laughs> instead, he had an elusive, beautifully beautiful graphics, an elusive sign that said hamburgers the way they're meant to be. Right. And, ah. As I used to say to him, Hans, it's just like Jesus. You see, you know, he tells a story and he says, if you have ears to hear, then hear. And he walks away. You know, you have to, and I would say people come in, they have a tongue to taste, then they have to ask the question, what, what do you mean meant to be? So It's beautiful. You know, uh, Steve, you mentioned the idea of our vocations acting as signposts. And I, I love that, that picture. And uh, I think even for some of our listeners, the idea of a vocation versus a career or an occupation um, it might be helpful even just to hear a little bit of, of your thoughts on this idea of vocation and um, uh, what is a vocation? How, how does it differ from an occupation or just a career path? Mm -hmm. It's a very good question, Elias. Um, so literally, as I said before a few minutes ago, the words vocation and calling are the same words. One has a Latin root, one has a Greek root, which many of the words we know most have origins like that. Um, but they both assume that someone is saying something. Calling, vocation comes from the same root that we get the word vocal from. So vo vox, vocation, vocare, uh, vocal, they're all the same etymological root. So vocation and calling are, are assuming that actually there's someone who's saying something that we can hear. 
And obviously, in a um, pluralizing, secularizing world like we live in today, um, that's a very contested idea that somehow you could name, you know, name someone or just name God, the God of heaven and earth as actually saying something to human beings on the face of the earth about what the point of life on the earth is when all is said and done. But the assumption of theists, which would be Christians and Jews and Muslims, is that there's a God who speaks about what it means to be a human being in the world. And um, so vocation is that word. It says, in fact, that God has said something. We are able to respond. We are responsible to hear what God has said to us. And uh, in the most broad brushstroke ways, vocation could be summarized in the words of the prophet Micah. You know, what, what does the Lord your God require of you? Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. Um, that would be, in some ways, the deepest sense of calling or vocation that we have as God's people in the world. Uh, hmm. But then you could legitimately, I think, and the church has done this, especially in the Reformation and po years after that, begin to dig deeply more deeply into the idea of what a vocation looks like in the world. And they would speak about a primary sense of vocation or calling, a secondary, a tertiary. Uh, we could say, you know, I think we can speak meaningfully about the vocation of the arts, the vocation of the law, the vocation of a teacher, the vocation of, of, of farming. Uh, we can use that word in a meaningful way in something like that. Um, hmm. so I think that vocation actually is the deeper, richer story of someone's life. And uh, so whether, you know, um, Christian, I know a little bit about you, but whether you are a Russian citizen whether you're a, an artist, you know, in Russia for a period of your life, you know, now you are, you know, have a different, you know, I would say occupation in Austin, Texas. But for me, the words occupation and vocation are related words, but they're not the same words. Mm. So that vocation is who Christian Flores is in his life. It was true when he was three years old and seven years old and 14 years old and 25 and, you know, 45 years old. Christian has not changed being Christian in the world. There's been a deepened, clarified sense of yourself over the course of those years, but you've gone from occupation to occupation a couple of times at least, and you've done, you've occupied different relationships and responsibilities along the way of your life, even though the vocation has been sustained and deepened through the years of your life. You have helped me tremendously with some of this narrative, and you and I have gone back and forth yes. through messages, and, and, and once again, thank you. Just thank you for, the, for giving me bandwidth and, and time to even listen to some of my thoughts but um that sort of connection between vocation and occupation i think it's it's something that confuses us puzzles us drives us in many ways um and um marrying those things and that's that's what i love about your thinking is that the seamlessness of connection, making a connection, and seeing the, the, both the differences and the similarities between those two are tremendously important for us human beings because we are called, we're, I think, wired for this, we're wired for calling, and yet we occupy different occupations right. every once in a while. And I, you and I have both gone back and forth, but I've said, I think if I read this correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, I would send you these messages, is that I can be, I can be a uh, I can be um, a a pop rock star, and then I could be a, a pastor and speaker and author, and I can be a business leader and building businesses and, and doing marketing. And how does how does this? You know, it just seems like I usually call it jokingly professional ADD, right? So there's this multiple interests and dimensions. Yeah. But what your writing helped me realize is that there's there's several occupations in this just one quick, you know, it could be sliced even further down more granularly. Yeah. But there's one vocation, which is culture creating and storytelling. That's very that good, Christian. Yes, um, yeah. and to me, that was a very healing process to just unpack, and, and I think it's helpful to people to really think that deeply. But those the tools and the narrative that you offer are tremendously helpful in, in my mind. Steve, maybe you could even speak to that because I think so many people are, we compartmentalize our identities into different things that we do, uh, right? To what Christian's saying, um, right. and. I think for many of us, we're on this journey. There's this kind of um, subtle angst that's humming in the background for many of us of who am I going to be? And that doesn't go away at 30 or 40 or 50 or whatever, you know, um, that we're 
we're kind of working towards becoming somebody. And and I think what you know you're you're saying in this idea of vocation is is this integration of all that we are and and what we do uh, is making is the sum total of 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 this idea nice. of vocation. So maybe you can kind of explain that a little bit more because I think it's a real shift in perspective for for many of us. Mm-hmm. Again, there's many things we could talk about, my friends. Um, one of the essays, Christian and the Seamless Life book, I've called a disposition to dualism. And Elias, you just use the word compartmentalization, which is a related word, of course. And and they're both plagues upon the church, I would say, all over the world, to compartmentalize faith, to create a dualistic faith. But in the essay, A Disposition to Dualism, I've told a little bit of a, the story of John Newton and have... Uh, it grew out of my speaking one morning in Birmingham, Alabama, a few years ago at the 16th Street Baptist Church, which is in some ways famously but very terribly known as the site where these little girls coming from Sunday school to Sunday morning worship were bombed and killed uh, in the 1960s. And uh, it become a, a place for people, pilgrims, to come and, and ponder and uh, be quiet and to think through what happened and why it happened. And but I was asked to speak one morning at a prayer breakfast for the city of Birmingham in this church uh, on the question, what would a recovery of vocation mean for the healing of our city, for the renewal of our city? And because I'm always interested in thinking through where I am and you know, trying to embed myself where I am, uh, the story of John Newton uh, mattered to me um, because John Newton uh, was you know, the short story would be that he was an English boy who went out, sent off to, you know, the high seas and ended up on the slave trade coming from Africa to the to the New World, as it was called, and and uh, did that for many years of his life. One day opened up a, a seaman's chest, found a Bible in it, and somehow in the surprising graces of God had a moment of repentant faith. And uh, But he kept on selling slaves and trading them for years afterwards. In fact, he would even have Bible studies on the top top deck of the ship with other officers, while the slave was full of hundreds of slaves, manacled, ready to go off to their destruction. Um, and didn't see the relationship between his newfound faith and his the work of his life. Uh, what I've said in the essay is that I don't disdain him for that, because I realize my own disposition to dualism. Um, but it is, to, I think, to be instructive for us to realize that we we tend to, we are disposed to be dualistic, to separate out, I believe this to be true about God and his world, and yet when I live in the world, I have to live like this. Uh, because I live in the city of Washington, D.C., um, I would say, you know, it's a city full of glories and shames, you know, uh, yeah, from beginning to end. Um, but because of the Congress is the Congress, and, you know, people watch it pretty carefully in some ways. You know, the city is full of people who would say, well, I'm a Methodist, I'm a Baptist, I'm a Catholic, I'm a Episcopalian, I'm a Presbyterian. But, you know, I'm first of all a politically progressive, I'm first of all politically conservative, I'm first of all a Democrat, first of all a Republican. My political allegiance, you know, wins is the most important part of who I am. I'm also, you see, a Baptist. I'm also, you see, a Methodist. I'm also, you see, a Catholic. Uh, one of my closest friends is a long, long worked on Capitol Hill, and very theologically astute, insightful, good man, said, maybe, he said, Steve, maybe, maybe there are f four or five members of the whole Congress who have the theological tools to think Christianly about political responsibility. Hmm. That's a sober judgment to make, and he's not somebody yeah. who makes judgments all, all day long. He's a very generous, gracious person, I would say. Uh, but I would say that that problem, that we're disposed to dualism, or to use your word, Elias, to compartmentalize, and to say, well, you see, on Sunday, I believe these things, you know, from John Newton, you know, on top on the top deck of the ship, I believe these things to be true. Right. But you, you see, my work is my work, and slave the slave trade is a slave trade, and, and business is business. So when you go to business, you have to go, be a businessman, but then, of course, you also, in your private life, believe these things to be true. So, in, 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 and on Capitol Hill, you are on Capitol Hill. So. Yeah. Politics is politics. Like politics is politics. Business. Yeah, yeah, it makes well, sense. Steve, can I ask you, from kind of a, for somebody who is new to the idea of Christian faith and, um, you know, maybe looking into it, peering over the fence a little bit and going, you know, what's what's the big story here that makes a difference? Uh, beyond Sunday morning for somebody, right? 
Um, and they're, they're looking into this idea of, of vocation and this integrated life and they're going, oh, well, that makes sense. Okay, that's, that's attractive. That's, that's a more holistic way to live, right? Um, <laughs> what is the story that the Christian faith is offering someone that when lived under this story, this narrative, um, it, it amounts to this idea of vocation and not a dualism uh, way of life? So, Elias, how long do you want to take a walk for? <laughs> well, I'll let you truncate however, however, uh, you know, many so again, years. I'm with, like, to, yeah. In Rome, I want to be with the Romans, but I'm in Birmingham uh -huh. with the Birmingham people, but we're in Austin with the Austonian, Austin, Austin people, too. So, Austin, you know, your best storytellers, Christian Flores, in Austin, Texas, is Terrence Malick. Maybe you have watched his movies. Yes, he's one of the best filmmakers in the world these days, of course. Yes, he is. And, yes. Uh, the last two films he's made, 10 years ago, The Tree of Life, and then more recently, The, the Hidden Life. Uh, um, I'm writing a book right now, and I've one of the chapters, I've held these two films together in the chapter because I've been talking about what I've called, they're a little bit of highfalutin words, but they're not, they're not bad words. But one is the word meta-narrative, one is the word narrative. Right. And uh, meta-narrative is, of course, the story of all the stories. Uh, narrative is the story of, of my life, of who I am, of who Christian is, who Elias is, who Stephen, Stephen is. That's the, the narrative. Meta-narrative is like, is there a story that makes sense of all the stories of your life and of my life too, and all of all of life, actually? So in The Tree of Life by Malik, of course, if you have eyes to see, it's the story, you ask which story it is, Elias, that makes sense of all this. It's a story from creation to consummation. It's in four chapters in Malik's film, The Tree of Life. It's a story, first of all, of creation, secondly, of the fall, sec thirdly, of redemption, and finally, of the consummation. So it's a, the story, to put it in other terms, of the world that was supposed to be, that ought to be. It's secondly, the story that of the world that is. It's thirdly, the story of the world that could be, that should be. Finally, the story of the world that someday will be. So if that is the yeah. meta-narrative of Malik's work, the hidden life is a different story. It's just the it's the story of one man's life of an Austrian farmer in the World War days of, of World War II when the Austrian when Austrian folk began to be beleaguered by and terrorized by the Nazis finally. And uh August is a farmer who lives in a small little beautiful place in a high mountain valley and and uh and the Nazis come to town eventually, and he's required as a man of the a village to join up with the National Guard of, of Austria, which he's willing to do until he finds out that he has to, to heil Hitler uh, before he's admitted to be in the National Guard, which he says, I cannot do that, actually. How can I say words I don't believe to be true? Uh, and everyone else around him, everyone else around him says, but Franz, they're just words. Just say the words, Hans. Mm. They don't matter. Who will care, really? Just say the words. He said, but I cannot say words I don't believe in. Um, I won't ruin the story for you or for your listeners here, but I would just say to you that as I have wrestled with this in my own self, your question, Elias, I would say, well, you have to, all of us, whether we're Hindus, whether we're Buddhists, you know, whether we're, you know, hedonists, secularists, whether we're, you know, Jews or Muslims or Christians, whatever we believe to be true about the deepest things of life, we all on some level, either consciously or not so, think through these questions of meta-narrative and narrative about what the whole of life is about and that what is, what is my life about. And I would say that we're, we're looking to see some coherence between what we think is true for all of reality, all of life, and what's true for my life. And I think for us to think in a way which moves away from dualism or compartmentalization, there has to be some kind of conscious commitment to the, the deepest of the stories, which is the story from creation to consummation. Hmm. So you mention, you mention in the book um, a couple of stories that, are, that I want to sort of bring up as some just starting points. Um, and the reason for that is because they're connected to some of my origin stories, some of the places that I've been and, and lived through and things that I've sort of thought quite deeply about. And one of them is about um, Václav Havel, who is mm -hmm. a Czechoslovakian novelist and um, a president of Czechoslovakia after sort of the, the communists lost power there. And um, I mean, his story, his, his story is absolutely remarkable. And he's probably one of the most enlightened beings, especially in the communist space, you know, that yes. helped turn the tide 
um, against communism. And, um, you know, I was in the middle of there, of this whole sort of yes. story, obviously. So it, it touches me deeply on, on a heart level. Uh, but he says something mm, that I sort of connect and I wanted you to comment on. One of, the, one of the lines, one of the quotes is that the secret of man is the secret of his responsibility. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's a prof- just resonated with me because to me, that is the one that's the, sort of the step, the element that takes somebody from victim to victor. Right. Right. Um, and t- t- the question I have for you is this. In the modern context that you see, how, what the, the narratives that you see clashing and mixing and pushing against each other in, in mm-hmm. America right now. Um, there's a lot of victim, you know, and how does it look like in your mind uh, to to insert that the secret of man, the sacrifice possibility? Because Vaclav Havel, basically, what he was, uh, the context of this phrase is, let's let's not focus as much on how we were wrong, wronged by the communists per se, for example, in this particular case, but let's take responsibility for our future. Mm-hmm. I think I think right. that what's the context. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I would love exactly you to right. unpack that. Yeah. It's exactly right, Christian. If you just think through, you know, just giving the shortest, shortest little window into this, but for 60 years, the Czechoslovakian people were terrorized, first by 15 years of Nazism, and then by, you know, 50 years of, of communism. And so they had, for generations, had begun to see themselves as having to live by other people's rules, by the rules of tyrants. And it's pretty easy, and you can understand this, we all could. Why you can begin to think about yourself is never having the chance to make your own choices because someone else is going to make the choices for you. And you've used the word rightly victims, the victims of history, the victims of a certain political agenda and brutality. So, But Havel realized there'd be no future for the Czechoslovakian people if they couldn't break free from this victimology, this victim identity. They have to somehow own their own ability to respond to history, their own responsibility. So that was really the subject of every speech he gave over the course of many years. What are the conditions in which a human being can take responsibility for history? Again and again, he addressed that all over the world. So he did that, but you've also asked the question about what in the contemporary moment, you know, 25 or 30 years later, is this. Um, uh, I've come to think that the, that the, the pantheist uh, word karma, um, which is, comes out of both Hinduism and then Buddhism, um, is finds its, fa- its expression all over the world, because in some ways it seems to me to be the primary, you know, or the counter-argument to Havel's argument that the heart of our humanity, the very secret of what it means to be a human being, is our responsibility. Because karma says, no, no, that never could be, never could be, because you see, that isn't the meta-narrative, the story of all the stories is not that story. The story of all the stories, the meta-narrative actually is that, in fact, you know, we don't make any choices at all, because the choices have already been made ahead of time. Um, right. It's karma, you see, after all, because uh, you don't have the human being make no choices that have consequence or meaning, because that's a fiction of your imagination, when you are finally fully enlightened which is, of course, the great goal of Hinduism and Buddhism especially, you know, you realize, in fact, that you make no choices like that at all in in history in the world. If that's the the pantheist East, I would say, in the secular West, fascinatingly, it's also enlightenment, which is the ultimate goal we speak about. But the enlightenment is to realize that we are our DNA fully and and, and finally. The DNA, our DNA, our chemical, biochemical composition, that tells the deepest story about who we are as a person, really. So we can always say about everything, and you know, no, 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 you see, it's my DNA, or I made this way, you know, I was born this way. Well, I realize in a broken, broken, wounded, wounded world, a lot of terrible things happen, and, you know, I never, ever, ever want to be heard as saying, I don't recognize those, and I'm not, don't take them seriously. I understand that. I think I do. But I'd also want to protest and say, but you see, if our primary sense of identity is, I am my DNA, well, we really, it's a lot like, you know, East pantheistic karma at that point. Because you see, at that point, it says that, you know, as, as B.F. Skinner famously said, you know, the father of behaviorism, you know, a generation ago, he, said, he wrote his book called Beyond Freedom and Dignity. Yeah. Beyond Freedom and Dignity. So you can see he's just saying, well, grow up. 
secular West, you know, these fictions you've had in your mind that we actually are people who are free to make choices, that there's a dignity in our choices. Or in, in Mumford and Sons, you know, beautiful song, Tim Shell, saying about, you know, saying that, in fact, our freedom, our choices, in fact, is our, our ladder to the stars. That's the poetic imagery they give. It makes us be human beings. Our, the, the choices we make, the freedom we have to make choices is our ladder to the stars. If that's true, which it is poetically profoundly true, really, you can see that Skinner is saying, no, 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 you know, grow up, realize that you are first and last in your DNA, you know, get over it. Uh, yeah. You see, that's the very same dead end, I would say, psychologically, philosophically, that Buddhism and, 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 and Hinduism mm -hmm. offer to. Well, it, it seems to remove the the sacredness of life huh. in that beautifully way. Beautifully right? said, Elias, yes. It's exactly right. Yeah. And beautifully said. I, I want to quote something, um, that, because this is, uh, I actually had this as something that I wanted to ask you. You said something profoundly true in sort of in in the critique of postmodernism um you you say in in your book uh, but the rub is in, in a post-enlightened world there is no voice no perspective that carries more weight than any other because no one has access to certainty about anything there is no story to make sense of stories no truth to make sense of truths no meta-narrative to make sense of narratives and all claims to the contrary, and this is, this is really deeply true, and you can see it experientially, know this is true, uh, are totalitarian and are not to be tolerated. The worst right. face of postmodernism is that nothing has metaphysical or moral weight. It is the culture of whatever, a nihilism for every man. Yeah. That describes today. Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. Sadly, it does. Yeah. And more so as the days pass. Yeah. So, so what is what is the? How can we heal this? <laughs> yeah. We, what's the antidote? Give us the. What's antidote. the antidote? That's the, correct. That's the word. Yeah. The, the secularist view. Well, there's no cheap answer. There's no cheap antidote, of course. Um, but I'm looking at you too. I know, and I know Christian better than I do you, Elias, but you must be kindred spirits to be talking together in, in your life. Um, uh, I mean, I would say, I mean, you describe yourself as having a vocation as storyteller, Christian. Um, and uh, um, I think on some level, the way people's hearts and mind are changed uh, historically, you know, whatever culture, whatever century they're in, is by hearing a better story. Um, mm, that's great. Uh, that's good. I think, I think about, you know, that fascinating story called Hamlet that Shakespeare told many years ago, you know, and Hamlet begins to realize that his father was murdered by his uncle and by his mother, of all people. Really. And uh, as he sees this acting troupe, this drama troupe coming into the castle yard, he ponders and says out loud, which we have for to hear for the centuries now, Perhaps the play's the thing to catch the conscience of the king. That is and, true. Uh, yeah. And I think, you know, again, which is part, part of why I linger over and keep talking about your local filmmaker, Terrence Malick. I think, well, you know, here mm -hmm. it is. A funny thing, isn't it, really? That you could take your, your Tree of Life film, which is, you know, if all with eyes to see, the story from creation to consummation. Um, you could take a better story a festival in, Paris, yeah. in France 11 years, 10 years ago now, and you could win what? The gold prize, the gold medal, the right. best film of the whole year in the, in the world, you know, artistically, artfully, you know, beautifully, you know, cinematically. It's seen by all the best, by the most critical critics saying this is the best film we've seen for the whole year, really. Now, it may be that most had no eyes to see the, the deeper story he was telling, but in some ways, there's still image bearers of God living in God's world. So, you know, on some level, that kind of story resonates with human beings. Because in some ways, the best stories are stories that allow us to see ourselves in them. You know? Yeah. That's, you know, the, the prophet Nathan coming to King David after that terrible moment in David's life where he is responsible for killing, you know, a, a man, killing a husband and taking the man's wife to be his own wife. You know, and it seems to live to do so with with no impunity, with no consequence. I'll just do what I want to do. I'm the king of Israel after all. 
But then eventually Nathan comes to him and says, well, you see, there was this, this man who had a little lamb, you know, King Dane David. And there was a man who had so many lambs, so many sheep, he didn't need a little lamb. But he, he took the one man's lamb, and before the story's even done, David rises up from his throne and says, this is so wrong. How could you possibly allow this to happen in the world? And, of course, David points his finger and says, but you are the man, King David. Um, and uh, I'm pretty persuaded, you know, I don't think it's cheaply done ever. Right. I do think that that's, I'm not sure any other thing can, I mean, we can't legislate, you know, out of ourselves out of postmodernity. We can't sort of say, okay, let's get the, let's get the most powerful legislators and, you know, university presidents to say, okay, uh, the University of Texas, we're no longer going to see to, to teach postmodernism. No, of course not. You can't legislate holiness either. No. (laughs) Would you say, Steve, to to create a community of people in Austin and wherever you take your own heart takes you around the world, Christian? You know, you're saying, well, we're going to be an embodied community here, a story, a story Mm -hmm. formed community that tells a different story about the meaning of life in the world. That's beautiful. And would you say, on an individual level? the when we grab a hold of our vocation it serves as a signpost to that story is that is that mm-hmm. right to say yeah it's a very Elias again we have have many things we could talk about together but you know even twice today i've been in conversations about this work i do with the mars corporation um if you were all listening to this morning perhaps to npr the ceo of the mars corporation grant reed was interviewed for about 10 minutes about mars's efforts as a corporation to address the climate problems and it was i think it took place in glasgow where this great gathering is taking place right now and and uh you know i work as a senior advisor to the mars corporation's effort called the economics of mutuality which is a serious effort as you could possibly imagine to rethink the business of business, essentially. And uh, it never ever is because I think that the Mars Corporation is heaven come to earth, you know, whether all good things have happened and will happen. But Elias, I've used the word even twice today. For me, I work on it, I work at it, I long for it because it's a signpost. It's a signpost of the way things should be in the world. I'm willing to live my life for signposts. Love that. I love that. It, to me, the what you mentioned about the Mars Corporation is fascinating because it gives us, without knowing, I know some details, but not all of them, obviously. But how much do you see of that happening in a world where um, multinational corporations are still shaping the future um, yeah, in yeah. many, many, many ways when it comes to culture, humanity, morality, uh, sort of stewardship. Yeah. Um, it's turned a little bit of a light on here. It's, is there, it's, is there a place or a, a hope perhaps for a, um, for a world where, mo- where more multinationals actually take that on? Is there, I mean, are there even interested? Is that because is is that because of the leadership, the people? Is it the marketplace is pressing against them? Is it for you know to make a good impression, to put a, a good face on it, a human face? Right. To, Should to we have hope world? for a better marketplace? Yeah. Is the question. Yeah. That is the question. Yeah. So I'm, very, I'm, very, I'm giving you all these, very, all these, these all these, the best, all these, all, all these things that pop into my head as. I'm sure they're not even, they don't even mean it. They're just doing it for sure, yeah, right? They're, they're yeah. very, they're kind the of very the... best questions to be asked, yeah. actually, I would say. Um, well, again, I would underscore this effort called the economics of mutuality is not heaven come to earth. Um, I would say it's a signpost, though, of how things should be, even thinking about the language, economics of mutuality. Um, it's an argument, essentially, that to, to keep making money over a long, the long term, you have to have a differently conceived bottom line, a more complex bottom line, one that it, what it consciously, seriously uh, remembers that the bottom line is not only financial, though it is that, but it has to be, it is not only profit, to put it in, the, in that language, but people and the planet at the same time. Um, if you don't account... Uh, actually account for all three of these you won't keep making money over the long term is the argument we've made Uh, so you that is that is profound possibility you have to actually account for all three together 
You can't choose them as one over the, against the other. And what are the three then again? Is it is that so it's finances? Profits. Profit. Profits. So to be in business, you have to make a profit. That's 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 just true, isn't it? Yes. But but to to keep making a profit, you have to. The bottom line has to include people and the planet too. People and the planet. Okay. Um, that's wonderful, and so I think it, it incorporates so much of even gen. You know, it, it includes. You are now taking. I think this is great because this is embodiment of theology informing the marketplace because we're taking mm -hmm. the book of genesis and inserting it there exactly right, right. uh yeah. we're taking you know deuteronomy and and uh, the exodus the, and, of the, ju the ju year of jubilee the year of ju correct even the sabbath yeah. the sabbath is you yeah. have servants so you have animals but you don't ex you don't make the animals or the servants work on the sabbath you rest and everybody rests and seven, and in the long seven run, sabbaths Seven years of Sabbaths, and then seven times seven years of Sabbaths. You're remembering the rhythm that God intends for us to live in in, in the created created world that is ours, really. And that's theology well, informing the marketplace. And the, the, right, the, right. to me, the, the beautiful thing about the work that you do, and and I really pray that more people pay attention to this, more business people, more corporations. Uh, the bigger the bigger the better, is that it is a win-win because it's the yeah. blueprint of humanity. Yeah, it's telling the better story. To, to use this imagery, it, it's really, I would say, a, a humble, <laughs> on some level, it, it is this. Though clearly it's a huge multinational corporation with, you know, billions of dollars at stake in the decisions they make. But it is, I would say, an, an earnest desire to make decisions about the marketplace that are, that are, in, the, that are in line with the grain of the universe. And that imagery, the grain of the universe, is, I think, profound imagery. It isn't mine, really. But it's just to say that there's a way that human beings are meant to live in the world. And, and when we live in that direction, there's more consonance. There's more continuity between how we're supposed to live, how we ought to live, how we, we should live, and the way that we do live. Uh, and, you know, I took these executives to Mars some years ago to meet Wendell Berry in his farm in Kentucky. Maybe you know his mm -hmm. writing. Yes, but I do. At the end of this long day of discussing this idea we had about a new way to imagine economic life, a new way we had to imagine business being done, he said to us as we were leaving that day, he said, you know, at the end of the day, I would say this to you. If you want to make money for one year, you ask certain questions, don't you? But for 100 years, you have to ask other questions. That is and actually that's that that's absolutely what we're true. trying to work at here is yeah. more the 100-year question. Um, and Christian, I know you are a married man, as I am too, and... Uh, um, I would say the same kind of question is about a marriage as it is about a, a business, isn't it? You know, you won't be married for a year. You could ask certain questions, couldn't you? Think, well, I'll get all I want out of this marriage in these 12 months, and then, you know, I'll go on. You know, you know, it'll be what I wanted. I got, I got it. I, I got, I got what I wanted. I, I moved on. Thank you. You know, you could do it that way. But if you hadn't been married for for 10 years, 25 years, for 50 years, you'd have to ask other questions about what what are the habits of heart required over time to make a marriage be an honestly happy marriage for husband and wife together. That's right. My, my business part, uh, partner and I, Brandon Nicely and I, in, in the company that we own, Third Drive, our motto is purpose and profit, and that's essentially the thought behind it, yeah. is that profit yeah. is important to do any business and to employ people and to grow and to add value, but purpose has to be the driver, or uh, the bottom line uh, ends up I don't know, undermining, corroding. That's exactly uh, right. The, the very so the thing two books written about this project, which might be interesting to you, the most recent one is an echo off of what you just said, Christian. It came out this past winter. It's called Putting Purpose into Practice. Mm -hmm. So it's by one of the Mars Corporation executives, the chief economist, and by the dean of the the Oxford University's business school, the Said School, um, who together brought this book into being. For the last seven years, Mars has had a partnership with the business school at Oxford to teach this new paradigm for economic life. Uh, but about four years ago, a book was written called Completing Capitalism. And these are the two men I took down with me to Wendelberry's farm. And the, the subtitle is Heal Business to Heal the World. Hmm. Uh, so my friend Christian, growing up where you did and going off to Mozambique as you did, I'm just thinking about, you know, all the hopes and, you know, dreams of your mom and your dad, you know, for a new way to live in the world as human beings. And I wonder what they would think about a book titled Completing Capitalism, Heal Business to Heal the World. This is this wow. is a perfect segue, Steve, <laughs> from the Holy Spirit into a couple of other 
bullet points that I want to touch upon uh, just because they're so so close to my heart and uh, I know Elias is going to Elias is going to tolerate my focus on this cuz he knows me well. Uh, you mentioned in the book um, this French philosopher uh, Simone Weil, Weil or Weil, I don't know how to pronounce it. Simone Weil, the French would say. Weil, Weil, Simone Weil. And it's, it's, is it a he or a she? I, I wasn't sure. She's a, from she's the, a she. she it, it's a, a she. she, I think that's what I remember. And um, the, uh, I read this and I, and I turned to my wife and I said, I want you to, let me quote this to you because this reflects my, my, understanding of the paradigm obviously my parents were communists mm -hmm. uh, come from two generations of communists right. probably you know two generations of, um and you know i studied economics i studied Karl marx all of that stuff so the, the next couple of questions has to do with that um and basically the story goes like this that uh, that she went to sorbonne and she became a communist a convinced communist she was a communist at age 10 already just to get the biography right by age 10 she said to her mom and dad I yes yes i mean that is profound and and she eventually uh, realized that uh, that one of the heroes of of, the, of that movement trotsky was in town uh, making a speech and she went to see him and um and she, that cured her from communism, essentially, that one speech. And she eventually landed, I don't know how quickly, in, in, into, the, into the Christian faith. About uh, but, 10 years but, later. Precisely, years yes. Later. Yeah. And, but what she said, uh, or quoted, or you quoted her, uh, is that uh, what she said is that Trotsky was enamored with humanity, but indifferent to the lives of ordinary people. That's and, right. Yeah. And, and to me, that was, that is... That 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 says it all. I just one illustration. So, for example, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a, essentially a, a very strange because it was basically a group of exiles in mm -hmm. Mozambique. All of them communists. All of them exiled. All of them suffered for their for their ideas, and all of them wonderful, remarkable people. But we would have these very immersive talks about about justice and the poor and uh, you know and capitalism and exploitation all of those things so many years later fast forward um and i hope they don't listen to this because they're gonna give me a hard time but i have all kinds of friends obviously from that group that are still around and uh, of course i campaigned against communists during boris yeltsin uh, yeltsin's campaign and i changed my mind just through education and experience and um so I'm definitely more on the free market, on the value of the free market. I value it a lot, and I think it adds a lot of value. And I think, honestly, it, it coincides with, with the biblical view of how people add value to each other. It's not really about capitalism or anything like that. But uh, one thing I did as a... They would probably consider me a capitalist now, right? And I'm a venture development guy, an investing, mm -hmm. investor guy, tech guy. And uh, so we started this little academy in Africa and uh for for the poor because i never forgot and i wanted to serve one of the poorest countries in the world that gave me so much and i still treasure it so much that i we with some friends established after school academy there it's a long i'm sorry that i'm explaining it so long uh but uh i'm leading somewhere and so we established this thing and i'm so excited and it's working and it's it's moving around and i would send a link to the website uh to all of my marxist friends and said, guys, remember how we talked about oppression, about the poor? Look at that. We're doing something about it, specifically in the country we grew up in. And, uh, and I have yet to experience one of them make a donation or make a trip, <laughs> which sort of, sort of, sort of illustrates, illustrates, hopefully, they'll make it, maybe they make a donation after this if they watch it. But, uh, uh, but it illustrates this idea that it's, it's sort of this DNA of being enamored with humanity, but really indifferent to the lives of individual of ordinary people, and it, I, I see that as sort of a cultural thing in in communist sort of Marxist thought. Uh, it's a long question, but I was wondering if you can sort of respond to that in any way. I mean, again, Christian, we should take a long walk to talk about this together. But it's its own kind of dualism, isn't it? If I talk about John Newton as you know being yes. sadly, tragically, terribly dualistic, confessing one thing to be true on top on the top of the ship, top deck of the ship, but other things to be true where, where the, the business of business was at stake. Um, 
but I would say, I mean, Trotsky and his whole, the world he represented was, was deeply dualistic too. We are disposed to dualism, was my argument about human beings as human beings, not as Christians as Christians necessarily, though Christians are too. Um, I think we, we are disposed to dualism, all of us really. Um, so yes, that would be true of, of Trotsky and uh, it was true of, I mean, wasn't the, the terrible word of, of Stalin, you had to, was it Stalin or for Lenin, I forget, but you had to be willing to, to break a few eggs to get an omelet. Oh, that's a very, yes, that's a very Sorry, Marxist thing to We want to, to kill say. millions of so Russian citizens <laughs> to get to utopia. Yeah. Yes. Um, we, yes. The utopia is the goal here. We're all going to utopia, but we have to be willing to justify the killing of millions of Soviet people to get to the utopia. That well, is the you tragedy. You see a problem, you know. So now that when people are, when the world is maybe cyclically, I want to say, enamored again with Marx, Marxian philosophies and thoughts. Um, mm -hmm. How much do you, how much of that DNA do you see? Um, I, I, I see it and perhaps I'm, I'm overreacting. Perhaps I am reading too much into it, but I see uh, whole paragraphs of Karl Marx lifted in placed yeah. in, pla in, in, in mainstream publications. Uh, and mm -hmm. the narrative has changed tremendously in the last couple of years. Do you see that or do you feel like I'm overreacting a bit? No, I don't. In some ways you have unusually attentive antennae, Christian, because of your own biography, uh, your, your own, the story of your own life. You have a ways in some ways to see this, that it, even though Elias and I both care about this because of you being you and you have grown up where you've grown up, you have antennae to make sense of this or to, to listen in and to say, yes, 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 I've heard that before. I've read that before, actually. Um, and the average citizen walking the streets of Austin, Texas would never, you know, make make that connection. But you do because of, of who you are, really. Um, so I think that, yes, I think that does happen. And you know, I mentioned my friend Steve Turner before today, but I think I, you know, we're talking last week and I said one of his poems that I have liked best over the years, it's a simple little short poem, it's called History Lesson, and it's just a few lines and it says this, history repeats itself, has to, no one listens. Wow. <laughs> Right. And I use the word secular, you know, circular yeah. or cyclical, you know, yeah. and I think there are finally, in the end of the day, there are not many options, you know, for how we can make sense of the world. I mean, they, one sense, right. the permutations can go on and on, of course, but when I say to you earlier, you know, when I listen to Hinduism, Buddhism, I think, well, karma, huh, that's interesting. It's, it's pantheistic form, you know, is distinctly pantheistic and, you know, Indian and Malaysian and, you know, Cambodian, but, you know, you could hear the same thing being taught in, in, in Austin, Texas, or Boston, yes. Massachusetts, you know, because it's the same, the same, the end point is the same point, really, that, that any, any idea you have, that in fact, you are a responsible agent making choices in the world with consequences, you know, that, that that's a fiction. Because um, in fact, it's already been decided before you even imagined yourself on the face of the earth, you know, before you even were, was our, the, 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 the dice had already been rolled. In fact, all the choices remained because you are your DNA after all. Um, the karma has already been in place for eons before you ever came into being, so get used to it. Don't imagine the fact that you have any choices to make have any meaning because you don't, because the karma is already in place. It's, it, is the, it is the capital R rule of, of the universe. Right. But again, that shifts the role of responsibility from, out, from within, within me to outside of me Right, and now yeah. I've got meaning those held responsible. Yeah, if history itself has to, nobody listens. Think back to being sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, Elias, right. and think about the right. very first response, the very first words that are said after the fall, are That's what? Right. God, it's that woman you gave me. Somebody else, yes, yeah. Because you, know, you see, we don't want that responsibility, which is, of course, why Havel says what he does so importantly and profoundly. At the very heart of our truest humanity is our responsibility. But we deflect that. We, In Romans 1 language, we suppress that because we don't want to have right. to deal with it. So we re repress what, what we know to be true about the world. And we say, no, no, no. It's that woman you gave me, God. I wish I could be responsible for what happened here, you see, with the tree. But in fact, it was your fault because you gave the woman to me. From the very right. first first conversation that's recorded in history, we deflect and suppress 
and resist because we want we don't want to take we want to be a victim we do which what a beautiful vision your your book you know visions of vocation the subtitle is is uh, common grace for a common good yeah. right and so to 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 live in a counter cultural way against that story is to um to be concerned both with the story of humanity and the humans that are living this humanity as you embrace yours in a full way mm-hmm. i hope that's true yeah. i think i think it is and and before i let you go i know that uh, it's been an hour now and we can go for hours and uh, the I'm dark saying, is uh, beginning to come because now with daylight savings time and place that's right of course, my i can see <laughs> your, your camera is getting darker and darker even with the light no longer is and i'm beginning more and more of a shadow on your screen so yeah yes like uh, the the interesting thing i want to maybe insert just one more um question for you and and they're sort of in the same vein same direction is that there's this other extreme that um that results in uh, in what uh, solzhenitsyn in 1978 he he was, of course, uh, a great philosopher, Nobel Prize winner for uh, the Gulag Archipelago. I think he, actually the Nobel Prize was something else, but the Gulag Archipelago is the masterpiece that both mm-hmm. exposed the Soviet system. I think it was responsible for the soft fall or the at least sort of um, pushed the world to to be less enamored with communist Russia uh, mm-hmm. in, a, in a very special, profound, powerful way. Um, but he also became a, 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 a great critic of America in the right way. And in 1978, he has this Harvard um, a commencement address. And he, he, talked about, he talks about how America has moved from being sort of a culture where God is part of the journey, right? Uh, part of a future um, to this anthropocentricity, uh, this us-me focused um, life where I am the center. And it's almost, in some senses, a not even responsibility, but a a, a sort of consumer, hyper-consumer oriented culture that leads to moral poverty and that leads to decline to the decline of a civilization do you see that this was of course spoken in 1978 he he could have spoken it as vividly as profoundly in 2021 perhaps even more so even more so yes even more so do you find that to be true do you find that for those words to be prophetic well if you have quoted my best effort trying to make sense of this moment using the language of the culture of whatever yes you can hear him in that speech christian having said to the harvard audience which to that before that point he was the darling of the west exactly the history right here and he was this soviet emigre you know great dissident you know he'd kept his own humanity alive during the gulag years begins writing these you know secreting these books out which became the best books of the whole world um and finally decides to leave russia to come to the states and at that point he still is seen as the great great alexander soshenitsyn you know when he speaks that day in the harvard square he becomes a persona non grata ever after in, in, in the West. And why is that? Because he stepped on the toes of the West at that point. And he mm-hmm. said these words, I get them pretty close to right, but I've been written into my heart for a long time. He said at that speech, it would have seemed inconceivable 200 years ago, even 50 years ago, for uh, a person to be granted boundless freedom simply for the satisfaction of his instincts or whims. But you see today, that is the case. Um, and, you know, I've updated maybe using the language of the culture of whatever but to be granted boundless freedom simply for the satisfaction of my instincts or whims you see those were fighting words those were like throwing the cat into the pigeons words from Solzhenitsyn to speak to America and it's heart the heart of intellectual you know uh, yeah. Zion you know in American culture Harvard University to say you mean you are going to critique our commitment to absolute autonomy yes Correct. That, is, that could be a problem somehow. You can't say that out loud here. Right. We will no yes. longer. We're going to give you your, your honorary degree, but no longer are you an honored man among us. Because you have now stepped on our toes and you said, in fact, that to be absolutely autonomous is a problem. 
So and then 30 we, years, yeah, 30 years later, we invented the smartphone. That was our response. <laughs> that was our response. Was, you That's cannot correct. say that to us, Solzhenitsyn. Here's autonomy. Yeah. So, so, so this this seems to be at the very core of a very loud, sometimes obnoxious, politicized, weaponized narrative. This there's this huge shift towards autonomy even uh, probably at an accelerated rate and uh, maybe 10x accelerated rate compared to where socialism was was even experiencing at the time that, yes mm -hmm. uh, and yet and there's a response a almost like a primal ugly sometimes response to this is a this is becoming a godless country where at some at some level i mean it was never god's country you know if, if you're absolutely honest there's all kinds of yeah, ungodly that. things that have that have happened in this country since inception and yet there's this there's this almost primal pushback that is sometimes in ugly aggressive and violent and vile and yet there's something in it seems to be that is good because it's isn't it isn't it a protest against against this against uh, complete autonomy especially autonomy from from a good god who created the universe and is co-author of the of creation and for for us is, do you see that do you, do you think this is accurate even though sometimes it takes very aggressive form if there is a theological voice that i've listened to very carefully in my life there may be two or three or four like that, but one of them was clearly a man named John Stott. And uh, he was an uh, Englishman, um, lived in London most of his life. Uh, if Protestants chose popes, which we don't typically, he would have been chosen the Protestant pope in the last part of the 20th century, I was, I'm sure. Um, but he said this in my hearing many times, um, looking at the teaching of Jesus in the parable in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And he said this in this mm -hmm. very richly Oxbridgian way, you know, as John Stott that he was, um, but a very long, gifted, much-loved pastor all over the world. But he said, why would you blame the world for being the world? Right. Right. You are Precisely. the salt of the earth, the light of the world. He says, why wouldn't you ask when you walk into a dark room, why would, why would you blame the room for being dark? Right. Why right. wouldn't you ask, why wasn't the light turned on? Why would you curse meat for having rotted? Why wouldn't you ask, so why wasn't this meat salted? Uh, he says, the question when the world begins to go bad, he said, the question is not so much to, for, to the world saying, what did you do, world? It really says, the question is, the, first of all, for the church, why, was the church, why wasn't the church the church? Why wasn't the church picking up its own deeper sense of calling to be the salt of the earth and the light mm. of the world? Yeah. And I have lived by those words for much of my life now, and they're hard words to hold on to because there's a lot, many ways the world, the flesh, and the devil pushes back against my, you know, longing to live as a man of hope in the world. Um, and there's things that go on that I just grieve over and crowd against every day, right. of course. I do. Uh, but I do think that Stott's reading of Jesus' teaching is right. You know, and it's kept me where I've been in my own life for a long time now. Why would you blame the world for being the world? Exactly, and and maybe maybe this is a good complete circle of the antidote that you gave us earlier. Is I mean, who's responsible for telling a better story? Ultimately, yeah, that's exactly right, Christian. Yeah, the world the world is not. That's for sure. It's not going to do that. Right. Yeah, yeah. So. That's just wonderful. Well, uh, Steve, thank you. Thank you for coming on. As I've expressed to you many, many times, how, how grateful I am, how, how much of a blessing you have been in my life, both through your writing and sort of the dialogues that we've been having over time. But, uh, but this is just really remarkable. And um, uh, the world needs, needs to hear more of, of your thinking, your writing, even your work, especially with the sort of the seamless work with the marketplace and how theology can inform mm. it. All of that yeah. is, is profoundly important and urgently needed. And uh, I, just, I just hope that we add a little bit to contribute just a little bit to the world hearing your voice uh, with more clarity um, and more depth. Well, I hope so too, Christian and Elias. It's a, it's a gift to know both of you and to be joined into the conversation with you. So thank you for, for that today. Thank you. Thank yeah. you very much.